1: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com to support this podcast. Here we are. This is the Be Here Now Network, and I am honored and delighted to be here today with my old, old friend and guru brother Ramdas. We've known each other. He's my oldest friend in the world other than blood relatives. Uh, really? I, there's nobody I knew before you that still will put up with me. So it's you and me and what's happened subsequent to that. So that was like in 1967 when I was a graduate student at Stanford in mathematics, believe it or not, and Ramdas knew a guy named Joel Waldman. Through his days at Millbrook, after they got kicked out of Harvard, him and Tim, and Ralph Metzner. So when Ramdas would come to Northern California, he'd stay at Joel's house. And uh, I knew Joel. Joel was a yogi, and so when Ramdas came, I got to know Ramdas, and we became drinking buddies. So I felt I was the luckiest yogi in America, and. Uh, so I ended up following uh, Ramdas to India and being with Maharaji back in 1970 and 1971, which of course profoundly changed my life, and I changed then from being Dale Borglum PhD, to Ramdave. And uh, after I came back from America, came back to America, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had said to Maharaji, Maharaji, I used to be a scientist. What should I do when I go back to America? And he said, "Just keep saying the mantra that I gave you." That was his only instruction. He didn't—he didn't really uh, wasn't any more specific than that. But eventually, I became the executive director of the Hanuman Foundation. And uh, so Ramdas and I, and Richard Johnson Vajra, were living in a house in SoCal, California, back in the late 1970s. Uh, Ramdas had known this Huxley. And Aldous Huxley was the first person in the West to talk about conscious dying. He wrote a book called Island. And in this book, Island, was a, a center for conscious dying. Ram Dass this, thought this was the greatest idea and started talking about it. And people thought, what? I mean, it, it, society was not ready yet to talk about conscious dying at all. That's right. So eventually, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross showed up and started talking about dying. Not conscious dying, but she started talking about dying. She was the first person in the West to really bring dying out of the closet. And uh, at one point, Ram Dass taught a workshop in Rhode Island at which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came as a student and at which Stephen Levine was the Buddhist meditation teacher. So Stephen and Elizabeth really hit it off. She invited him to be her apprentice, if you will, and Stephen started teaching workshops with Elizabeth and traveling all around the country, on his own dime, by the way, he told me, Uh, and uh, eventually it was impossible to just be the Buddhist meditation teacher, because there were people dying, there were people grieving, all these things were going on, right? So he got into the the dying work, and eventually Elizabeth and Stephen parted ways very amicably. She ended up including some uh, people who were very interested in violent psychodrama who were saying that you can't die well as long as you have any negativity so that we, they declared a war on negativity and were beating up telephone directories and mattresses, screaming "Screw you! I hate you, Daddy!" and things like that, right? Which didn't dovetail too well with Stephen's <laughs> Buddhist meditation. So Stephen uh, parted ways with Elizabeth. Ramdas described Elizabeth as an attached saint, which I thought was a very good description. <laughs> she seemed to exist on caffeine and nicotine, or two main yeah, food groups.
2: Yeah, she smoked all our, uh, my. And, and they, they retreat. She smoked.
1: Yeah, all the time, had a cigarette in her mouth and a cup of coffee at, yeah. at, at hand. So, Stephen, Ramdas invited Stephen to start doing the conscious dying work as part of the Hanuman Foundation. And uh, conscious dying was really bringing the traditional teachings of the Dharma to the place in our society that was most resistant to awakening, maybe with, as, except for the White House. But, uh, <laughs> so Stephen started talking about Buddhism and Hinduism and meditation, and applying it to being with dying people. And Stephen had been a poet. He is a very heartfelt uh, fellow. As you may know, Stephen died about a year and, three or four months ago, early 19, uh, 19, 2016. So, Ramdas and Stephen and I, I was definitely the junior executive in this triumvirate. Ramdas and Stephen and I started this conscious dying work. Uh, and we were going around teaching workshops about bringing the Dharma to the encounter with death. Uh, eventually, we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a place where we could actually do this? Rather than just talking about it, we could have a dying center. And the only three places we could come up with that we'd all be willing to live with were the Bay Area, Maui and Santa Fe. And we all liked Maui, but we thought since we were trying to change society, that Maui was too far removed from the center of where things were happening, and we'd been living in the Bay Area for so long that we settled on Santa Fe. It might also have something to do with Andrea. falling in love with Stephen and she was living in Taos but anyway we all moved to Santa Fe and the notion was that we were going to start a center for people to come and die consciously the first one in the western world consciously means
2: spiritual yes because we, we that center was the staff and the patients were to uh, they were they were it was like an ashram
1: exactly so that the staff was doing caregiving as their spiritual practice yeah. and the patients were doing dying as their spiritual practice
2: right.
1: a- although for the first 6 months everybody that came got better and left So I was waiting for somebody to die to validate my career, which is a rather strange (laughs) position to find myself in. Uh, Anyway, we were trying to find it. Stephen was trying to find a place for the Dying Center, and he, he was having a hard time. And eventually he decided he would rather live with Andrea than strangers who were dying. She had come to one of our retreats at Lama as a potential dying person. So Stephen bowed out and it was you and me, and just between you and me, you're very good at initiating things, but maybe not the best to follow through, and you disappeared into the sunset. So there I was, I just moved to Santa Fe, and Ramdas went on a a speaking tour and ended up making more money than he expected. So I said, why don't you give me 10,000 bucks, I'll start the Dying Center, and you said, okay. And we started the Dying Center, and over three years, 86 or 87 people came, To the center. Uh, As I mentioned in the beginning, everybody got better and left, but then eventually people started dying. And they only started dying after Mr. Tiwari came and did Shivaratri at our house. And he said, Patients will come now, Ramdev. Wow. And he did a blessing for the dying center. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. So, everybody that worked there said it was the most rewarding and the most difficult thing they'd ever done. Yeah. It's, if you haven't been around somebody who's dying, it might be hard to imagine, but even three people living there would get exhausted taking care of one person who was dying. It would become a 24-hour-a-day job. Working with the changing medication, going into the town and getting food, The easy part was being around the the person who was approaching death. The hard part was dealing with the lawyers, the relatives, the doctors and all that kind of mess and uh, generating the money to keep the place afloat. But uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said "Until until one comes into intimate contact with death, one's spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante until you know in your bones that you're gonna die. You can medit- meditate till your knees fall off, and you can get a better personality structure, you can become a little happier, but the deeper fruit of spiritual practice will be unavailable until you really know you're gonna die. In fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have what are called the four mind-turning truths, which you probably know about. That Before one begins to practice, we need to cultivate motivation because the spiritual path is difficult at certain points. And the first mind-turning truth is you're gonna die but you don't know when. Okay, so what could be more obvious intellectually than you're gonna die but you don't know when? But if we really knew that, if we didn't know that anybody who's listening to this or anybody in this room or you or I were gonna survive this podcast, that we might be dead before the end of this, how would it change the way We were loving each other. How would it change the way we were being present? Uh, Richard Ebert, the film critic, Roger Ebert, was dying of a really painful facial cancer and somebody asked him if he would write out an interview about how cancer had changed his life. And he said, as I type this sentence, I don't know that I'm going to be alive when I type the period at the end of the sentence. So, that sense of you're going to die, but you don't know when. How much can we bring that into the moment? So, it's not some intellectual, yeah, of course we're going to die, but we don't know when. But, like right now, this moment, this next out breath. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't go. <laughs> okay. So, the other three mind turning truths are life is precious, there's karma, and there's suffering and if you take all, if you you kind of gather these together like a bouquet of flowers you're gonna die but you don't know when life this moment is precious there's karma what we do has an effect what we think or say has an effect and if we act with grasping there's going to be suffering if you bring all of those together and really let that sink in it turns the mind towards wanting to wake up now my experience has been, and I'd be interested if in the same is true for you, that the most beautiful Americans I've ever met, with very few exceptions, are people who are almost dead. Oh, what? Are people who are almost dead. Almost dead. Because they're willing to be themselves. They're not concerned yeah. about, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm rich, I'm poor, yeah. uh, I've got a big nose, I've got a small nose, yeah. but that's that essential quality yeah. is, is being whittled away to only that.
2: Yeah, I find that sitting bedside with somebody who's dying, yeah, being in truth, in truth, and the moment, mm-hmm. the moment. And I feel that, that those are the those are the moments that I treasure. Treasure it.
1: So I guess my question is: Do we have to wait till or somebody is dying, or can you and I do that right now? Let's do it. <laughs> 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 exactly. Doing it. <laughs> Doing it. Doing it. Doing it. We'll be it okay so as an ex-mathematician here's my equation all fear equals fear of death and fear of death equals lack of enlightenment yeah the New York Times did a survey what are you most afraid of number one was speaking in public number three was dying yeah (laughs) which is on the face of it kind of humorous but the place that you and I would be afraid of speaking in public is the place where we're caught in feeling we're separate which is fear of death yeah and uh, what I've noticed it when I used to go to longer meditation retreats that there would be this process of spacious mind and then some thoughts would start arising and I would become aware of those thoughts and they'd dissolve and then there'd be that spaciousness for a while which is very delicious and wonderful and then these thoughts often silly thoughts would arise and after a short or not so short period of time I'd be aware of the thoughts and they'd go away and I started asking myself why do I keep interrupting that spaciousness and what I began to notice in the very subtle way is that right before the thought there was fear of death there was fear of spaciousness that the ego structure yeah. was not yeah. being reified in that spaciousness yeah. so the ego structure believes Descartes I think therefore I am which we postmodern man-woman knows really isn't true. But the ego structure believes that if I start thinking again, then Dale still exists in the way that I think of Dale. And so that in a way, spiritual practice, and particularly contemplative practice, is learning to work with that urge to run away. And when we were in India, as you remember, uh, you came up with this great quote, faith, comma, no fear fear, comma, no faith, and whenever we had faith in Maharaji there would be no fear, and whenever fear would arise, <coughs> yes. uh, Maharaji disappeared. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I hope you don't mind me telling this, but we were living in Santa Fe and our dear friend Richard, who was very good at organizing fun, <laughs> organized a river trip. For you, yeah. me, Jai Lakshman, yes. and Richard, uh, going through, going down the rapids of the Rio Grande and sp- Spring snowmelt big runoff in inner tubes. Everybody else has got helmets on and they're in big rafts, we're on inner tubes. And as we started the <laughs> trip, the very first thing is you go through a place called the toilet bowl. Everybody got knocked off their inner tubes except you, somehow you went right through, and we got and we had taken mushrooms before we <laughs> did went on this this trip that the trip was so challenging and beautiful and exciting that I think we all forgot we were even had taken mushrooms so we got to the end of the trip and Jai Lakshman's truck was parked right on the edge of this uh, small cliff going into the river and you and he got into his truck to drive back up and get the truck at the other end of the Uh, journey and on the dashboard of his truck was a picture of Maharaji and you were in this really wide awake state because the mushrooms and the river and all that and you looked at Maharaji and you said and it was not a picture at that point Maharaji was right there in the truck he said I've got you now Maharaji I'm never gonna let go of you never and Jai turned the key the truck was in gear it lurched toward the abyss you went ah and Maharaji was gone So that this thing of not letting go lasted about two seconds. (laughs) I don't remember that. I'll bet you. (laughs) So anyway, I mean, being in India... Maharaji didn't really uh, Encourage us to be meditators or practitioners, but it was all about faith It was all and he would push us right to the edge with so many different ways of uh, Telling everybody that you were commander-in-chief and then people would treat you not like the commander-in-chief and uh, He was just pushing everybody's buttons and could we keep coming back to that love that sense of trust in him which uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, and that was the work. I, I faith is
2: it's critical. People come to me and don't have faith, right? And I say, Ask Maharaji, uh-huh. because, ask Maharaji, please give me faith, Of because you don't have Maharaji to, you have faith.
1: Right. <laughs> Maharaji said, if you have faith in God, there will be no fear. Yeah. Yeah. Fear is
2: so much uh, a an ego. I'm sorry. What ego? Yeah. And as you identify with the soul, there's no faith. There's no there's no there's no fear no fear and but then the, it, it's always a delicate place in in spiritual life to trust your fear to
1: trust your faith trust your faith you know the way you said it and you corrected yourself, I think also that we that we can trust our fear, yeah that it, it doesn't need be to it doesn't need to be suppressed or pushed away that the the deeper practice is to trust your faith, but when fear is there, that's the next moment that's what's waiting to be embraced in your life, yeah, and can we be aware of the fear? can we not push it away? Can we love the fear? can we embrace it right you know so uh it's a lot harder to. The Tibetans say that when you die, there will be a light that is bright as a thousand suns. So that we can talk about working with fear and we can talk about compassion and working with the difficult. But an, an, another path, maybe more difficult, is learning to bear the light, learning to bear faith. That, that right now, uh, that light that will appear when we've died is here. I mean, it's not something that's not here now, that you and me and everybody in this room is living in that light that's as bright as a thousand suns. But because I, we, I find that, that light is your guru. Yes. Your
2: guru meets you as you die. That follows from from the living, dying, uh, and, um, life after life, mm-hmm, uh,
1: literature. But what I'm saying also is that that light that's as bright as the th- that's the Guru. We don't have to wait till we're dying. That it's it's like in every moment. But we're so identified with I'm over here and you're over there, and you're. Older than me, and and whatever—all these differences. But there's also that place where we're just the light, and it's so hard to remember that. And that that the fear we're talking about can be a big fear, like when the when the truck almost went over the the abyss. But there's this subtle fear that keeps arising, moment to moment, where we we fall back into distracted thought or addictive patterns. Not just addiction in terms of drugs or alcohol or the the obvious ones, but just a way of wanting excitement, or wanting to understand things, uh, to be with these more subtle ways of not having faith. Rumi has this wonderful quote where he says, grief is the garden of compassion. And a garden is a place where something wonderful and beautiful grows, of course. So how does, how does compassion and faith grow out of grief? Grief is the quality of negative emotions arising out of feeling separate. And compassion is connectedness. So how do we transmute that feeling of separateness into connectedness, and transmute compa- uh, grief then into compassion? And uh, That's the hard work. That's the hard work of, of even though we've loved and we've been disappointed and we've loved and we're imperfect in certain ways, there's also a perfection about all of that. And uh, So I found again and again that people who maybe don't have much of a contemplative practice, as they're approaching death, with the proper kind of support, can begin to let go of these identities that create our separateness. We had one fellow that came to the Dying Center. Uh, Stephen Levine, going back to the story, the history I recounted in the beginning, Stephen Levine, his organization was called The Dying Project and eventually Stephen decided he didn't want to be part of the Hanuman Foundation because he was a poet and the bookkeeper kept getting upset he didn't get the numbers in on time so he kept doing exactly what he was doing but he did it on his own so you asked me to take over the the Dying Project and uh, the name Dying Project always seemed kind of strange to me in the sense that you didn't know it was a project about dying or whether the project was dying itself. <laughs> okay. It was a dying project. <laughs> and So I changed the name to the Living Dying Project. Because to me it's about that interface between living and dying, that living slash dying. How dying informs living and living informs dying. Yeah. And uh, as we're getting inexorably older, you and I and everybody, uh, I feel more and more freedom. I Freedom. feel more and more awake. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom awakeness. Awaken. That I don't care so much what people think. I'm not trying to. Yeah. Uh, well, you, well, you don't care for. You don't care for
2: social um, interaction. Not so much. No. 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 And you're spacious. Your perspective above, above everything. You, you, witness your life. Mm-hmm. Witness, witness, witness this moment.
1: What we were talking about before we went on camera, up and up in your bedroom, was that in my own practice. I went to a lot of long meditation retreats, you remember I was a very committed meditator and I would have amazing experiences yet a day or two after the retreat was over I would be 99.99% as neurotic as before I started the retreat but I was not integrating that awareness into relationship, into work into my social interactions very well.
2: Uh-huh.
1: and. Uh, I finally began to understand some of these things we were talking about in terms of somatic practice. That a lot of these Asian texts were written by and for people a few thousand years ago who were grounded and centered, were unneurotic, loved their mommy and daddy, walked around barefoot, and didn't have an iPhone. So that it was assumed that you were in your body, that you were grounded, that you were really present in a somatic sense and maybe here on Maui everybody's walking around barefoot here in the house it's easier to be grounded but a lot of people who have really busy lives in the West are living up and so this notion of being aware is something that happens sporadically but there's not the support that gives us the faith that we can keep letting go into openness and that that sense of learning to inhabit the root chakra, doing grounding meditation, uh, breathing down into the earth, and then being centered down in the belly so that one can uh, manifest the universe's energy into into your life. Uh, And in fact, even beyond that, I think a lot of people who really get into meditation are trying to get away from a life where they're not grounded in centered. Yeah. And they're trying to do the spiritual bypass of my life isn't really very grounded, I'm not very present, why don't I try to meditate my way out of this predicament?
2: Well, I did this in spirituality. Didn't we all? I, I just reached Maharaji and I put away the, the the motives that I had in my life like I wanted to get power. I didn't, I didn't want a power like that. And then I felt very, very um, above it all by being in spiritual life. Right. And I really missed something by if you know, I, I was. I was a human being and a uh, living in life and I ought to bring that into to my spiritual
1: right. Maybe that's why Maharaj would pull up our beards and we would start to meditate. Yeah. I, he'd pull you right out of meditation and say, no, no, yeah. just be right here. Yeah.
2: I, I w- went, when I came back from a meditation course, uh, I had made an appointment um, Manindra was a meditation teacher. Minder wanted to stay in an ashram for the summer and I I wanted to be in that ashram. And I a uh, cottage I've been water system and oh i did a thing I told maharaji that my meditation teacher He said he said if you wish and that's that's the kiss of death <laughs> if you wish Because it just. I wanted to meditate like the big boys meditated. Right. Like you.
1: <laughs> at that point. But then when his mother got sick and he never showed up. Yeah. And you were stuck with us. Yeah. <laughs> So I went to Maharaji and said Maharaji you know when I was in America I was a mathematician and my mind is just all jumbled up. Can I go and meditate with Muninder and Goenka and he said if you wish. Yeah. And I thought, Man, that wasn't very enthusiastic was it?
2: Yeah. If you wish. I was into Bhakti, and so that's, that's all love and, and the grace of the Guru, right? And singing and, um, that doesn't include. Meditation.
1: Yeah, he loved it when we were singing. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: I studied meditation with the Southern Buddhist breath. And uh, and I'd pretty uh, concentrate on my breath until my knee hurts. And then my knee hurting would primary object put down there. there knee hurting and knee hurting and knee hurting and knee hurting. And then that carry over to I concentrating on Maharaji with the primary object. My concentration was spray. I never, never, never wavered, wavered, and that was my Buddhist ground yeah. Bhakti is my major, major practice. Just love. Um, when you said that you love those thoughts, that's the, that's the bhakti way didn't mm-hmm. get to that. Like, like uh, I notice I'm identified with my soul, which would be bhakti. And um, and the witness, the witness is in my soul. And then I witness a thought that isn't going to get me to God. I used to I'd I'd, I'd love uh, i that thought I'd I'd say i I love it to death. Would be like boom. Now I, I just say, I love it, mm. and it keeps my keeps my soul loving. Yeah. We have different styles. we both, Maharaji.
1: Yeah, he he kind of told me to meditate. Actually, he, he one of his instructions was about that well, I should meditate. Another thing, uh, when I we got jowed because our visas had expired and you and I and a bunch of people had to leave India and I went to Maharaji and I said you know I used to be a scientist now I'm going back to America no I'm sorry I'm getting these anyway I, previous to that I went to him and I said uh, I'm really having a hard time meditating how should I meditate this is before I went to the Munindra Goenka stuff and I thought maybe he'd give me some really great meditation think of me and concentrate on your heart or something and what he said was he said remember mariam the mother of jesus and i said what and and i was trying to get away from christianity i had grown up as a lutheran it was not something i wanted to even remember right and uh... he said remember mary uh... and you'll be able to meditate see all women as the mother and you'll be able to meditate and I realized that when I'm in my life and I'm seeing all women as the mother of God, I'm in a meditative state. And no matter how much I'm trying to meditate, if I'm objectifying people and women, then meditation goes right out the window. Uh, and it really is like seeing God, he would say, Everyone's a reflection of my face, which is kind of the same message. But for me, particularly, it was with women, of seeing all women as the mother. And then meditation would happen. That's fascinating. Yes, <laughs> given who I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you said you were going
2: to the West, maybe that. It could have been.
1: <laughs> and West science, uh, you yeah. know. So faith no fear, fear no faith. I've always remembered that.
2: Yeah. because you're... It's like Miriam. It's like faith. If you stick to faith, You're thinking about
1: spirituality. I see Maharaji in everybody's face. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, I I see Maharaj. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: It's been a long journey, a wonderful one, and I thank you for uh, your part in bringing me to Maharaji.
2: I hope that my (laughs) tomb—he brought Maharaji to the West. That would be a good epitaph.
1: That beautiful. Maybe that's a good place to bring this to an end. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe I can give a short plug for the Living Dying Project. Uh, we have a website, livingdying.org, that is the most complete site on the web that talks about conscious dying. There's uh, practices and meditations and articles by me and by Stephen Levine and Joan Halifax and many other people. Uh, we have an online workshop that people can take that has a streaming live support component and we have volunteers who have been trained to offer conscious support to people with life-threatening illnesses all around the world. So if you're interested in any of that just go to the website my phone number is there you can call me up we can talk about that or anything else you might like to talk about. And uh, I'd like to thank Ramdas and everybody here for this opportunity to uh, have this delightful encounter with somebody I love really a lot. And I hope all of you out there can feel that love. Thank you so much.
2: Me too. <laughs>